Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, finance, history, politics, and sports. Today's session is about game theory and sports. Our first guest is Stanford economist Paul Oyer, who's also an associate dean, who's written the book, An Economist Goes to the Game, How to Throw Away 580 Million Bucks and Other Surprising Insights from the Economics of Sports. Paul will discuss which sports your kids should play, why South Koreans dominate women's golf, and how does game theory inform us whether Michael Jordan should take that last shot or pass the ball to another player? Our second speaker will be University of Michigan economist Stefan Siminski, who is the author of Soccernomics. Our discussion will focus on economics of all things soccer, including why European soccer owners lose money, and why do certain soccer positions take most of the earnings? Buckle up. I make this podcast to learn, and I offer this program free of charge to anyone that's interested. Please tell your friends about it and have them sign up to receive our weekly emails about upcoming shows. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe so you can continue to enjoy this content. All right, this session was taped with several of my friends at Stanford Day, which was a celebration of Myron Scholes' 80th birthday. Paul, how did you come to write a book about the economics of sports? So it actually started as a project with my son. He helped draft some of the chapters and did some of the background research. But somewhere along the way, he became a communist and the whole economics thing <laughs> wasn't working out anymore. So it's really become my project. It starts with a story of my son hitting a game-winning home run in Little League. And what's that got to do with economics? Because economics is not the study of money. It's the study of scarce resources. And the scarcest resource we have is our youth. The economics of being a kid are all about the trade-off between investment and consumption. Youth is an opportunity to learn things and do things that will create human capital that will make you better off later in life, but it's also a chance to consume and enjoy these great memories that are really utility and value and consumption. But if I'd spend too much time on Little League, I wouldn't be a Stanford professor right now. The first chapter is about how much should you invest in your child's career, sports career. And the lesson is, for those of us who are lucky enough to be in a pretty fortunate position, we should probably not invest that much in it for the sake of their future, but rather we should invest it strictly because we want to enjoy consumption in sports when you're a kid. My son played Little League. He was very good, but we didn't pursue a sports career for him. And you might say, well, but all the skills he learned in sport have made him better at his current jobs and made him better at school, the discipline. The empirical evidence on that is really weak. They might develop those benefits. It's hard to say it's really going to pay off later. And it's certainly hard to say relative to the opportunity cost of studying or practicing the violin or something else that it's better. There are exceptions. Some of you are probably Giants fans and you've heard of Jock Peterson. Well, Jock played Little League with my son. So sometimes this pays off. He makes $6 million a year now. My son doesn't, by the way. <laughs> and there's probably a lot of kids in my son's class at Brown University who make $6 million, who become entrepreneurs or something. The point is, even if you count the Jock Petersons and Jeremy Lins of the world, sports doesn't typically pay, even when you think about scholarships and maybe getting into college in some instances. What are the exceptions? Kevin Durant is very different from my son. 
He was born into a difficult economic situation, and if you just look statistically at the economic mobility of somebody with his background, the likelihood that he would rise to a high level of income through standard jobs is not very high, whatever barriers there are there. Unlike a kid from Palo Alto who could get into Brown University and make a decent living, it looks tougher for a kid like Kevin Durant from inner city Washington, D.C., when he's 13 years old, he's six feet eight. That makes a big difference. The number of people who are six feet eight when they're 13 and coordinated is very small, and the fraction of those who play in the NBA someday is large. So if you find yourself coordinated, willing to spend a lot of time investing in basketball skills and six feet eight when you're 13, then the return on investment looks really, really good. There were 320,000 African-American baby boys born in 1988 who live in the United States. 320,000. Kevin Durant earns 1% of the income of that group. The amount of money involved relative to opportunities elsewhere for this particular kid. Now, what about the white kids, or what about the white kids from Palo Alto? It wouldn't be anywhere near that level, even with his income. Between 6 and 7% of all the money earned by American black men born in 1988 was earned by NFL and NBA players. So if you know when you're 13 that you have the physical skills to go down that path, it becomes worth it if your other opportunities aren't that great. That's the economics of youth uh, sports. The second chapter is about why are some countries so great at sports? Liechtenstein is the most accomplished sports country in the world, measured in Olympic gold medals per population. It has a population of 37,000, and they win a gold medal in skiing every few years because of just pure natural advantage. They're lying at the base of a mountain. The kids after school go up and ski, and there's only 37,000 people. One of them becomes good every few years, and it's totally location-based. Did you watch the Winter Olympics? Norway dominates cross-country skiing. Again, that's mostly just what an economist would call natural advantage because in Norway, the mountains are far away. Because of the nature of how dark it is in the winter, there isn't as much daytime, which is critical for downhill skiing, but not so much for cross-country. A few other factors that give Norway a natural advantage better than Sweden and Finland. Well, that comes down to putting a complementary investment from their other natural advantage, which is oil. So Norway has all this oil money. One way they've chosen to spend it is to develop their Olympics teams. The book is about sports, but it's about economics more broadly because that story is exactly the story of why wine in Napa Valley is so great. Until now, you've had this natural advantage in grape growing, and then you have a complementary thing, which is rich millionaires around here who need a hobby and pour money into making these wineries really good. It's exactly the same economics as Norway and skiing. My favorite economic story, which has nothing to do with natural advantage, and that's Korean women golfers. If you ever turn on a women's golf tournament and look at the leaderboard, you almost always see some Korean either at the top or near the top. Korean guy, usually not. There was one major championship won by a Korean man 20 years ago. 36 have been won by Korean women. And if you look in the top 50 golfers in the world right now, the top Korean man is ranked 18th. And for women, the number one golfer is Korean. Three of the top 10 and 14 of the top 50 women are Korean. So why men versus women? Well, first, let's talk about why they're good at sports. 
like, what, Korea, like what a stupid place for golf to be good. Do you know how crowded Seoul is? If you hit a golf ball in Seoul, you'll kill people. If you drew a golf course in the middle of Seoul, 10,000 people would live in that amount of space. So there's no natural advantage. If you've been to Asia and seen these triple deck driving ranges and you hit your ball and there's a net, it goes like five feet before it hits a net because there's no space. So why golf? Well, that's a little bit of a mystery. Why are the girls so good in particular? That balance between investment versus consumption as children, Koreans are all in on investment. I'm not making racial stereotypes. It's empirical statements by surveys. They eat dinner with their parents, the least of anybody in the world. On the days where they do the entrance exams for college, they close the airports or at least make them fly in a different direction so the kids can concentrate on the tests. And they open the stock exchange late so the parents can drop their kids off and get them all settled. The very the, uh, much less amusing part of this is suicide rates the day after the results come out are high. It's all about focus. So the boys focus on school. Why? Because it's going to pay off in the career. Why are the girls less focused on this? Korea has the largest gender pay gap in the world among developed countries. The only country that competes with it for that is Japan. And so the girls are like, well, I have to work all day because that's the culture here. I'm going to focus my efforts on golf. They're also really good at archery and a few other weird things. And it's all about differences in the payoff in the labor market and how people spend their time. There's a woman named Jung-un Lee Six. She won the 2019 US Open and she recently was second in another major golf championship. Her name is Lee Six because there are so many Korean women on the Asian golf tour and so many named Lee that they give them numbers to identify them by. She said she wanted to play golf because I wanted to support my family no matter what. I want to push back on your explanation for the dominance of Koreans in women's golf. Lots of kids are miserable in school or have limited economic opportunities, but they lack the discipline to practice golf every day. I would have thought that we would have argued that some famous female Korean golf star was a role model for a generation of young girls there and that her success encouraged them to play golf. I, I can come up with a story for anything. It took a while to zero in on an explanation for the Korean women. Women are very good at tennis. It's about institutional features. The rich people in Czechoslovakia 200 years ago loved tennis. And that filtered through the Soviet built on top of that. I've done research not related to this book about the role of just random things that's on the labor market, but random stuff affects whole countries' trajectories. And Czech tennis is a good example where random stuff from a few hundred years ago had a huge impact. Economics drives professional sports. Different sports play more matches. Major League Baseball has 162 games. The English Premier Soccer League has 38 matches. But American football has only a 17-week season if you don't include the playoffs. Why is there so much variation between sports? And why don't they play all year long? There's trade-offs. So on the one hand, more money, more games, more games, more injuries, and less consumption of leisure. American football, the risk of injury is so high that they're really in a bind to go any further than 17 or 18 weeks. They will keep going. College football fans 
when we were kids, you'd play nine weeks, you'd play a bowl game, and that was it. Now, college teams, after the new playoff system's in place, some teams will be playing 16, 17 games. So it's all economics. The money gets bigger. That trade-off between more money now, but the risk of brain injuries is a limiting factor for the revenue per game being higher is more and more incentive to extend the season. If the revenue per game wasn't as high as it is in the NFL, you wouldn't be able to sustain a sports league with millions of dollars of salary that can only play 17 games in a season. The only way a sport can survive with a short season like 17 is if the revenues are really, really high. There's other sports where the seasons are very short, but they handle it differently because it's an individual sport where people are more substitutable. Boxing and MMA and marathon running, people only do them a few times a year, but there are races and fights every weekend. So the sport can have revenue every weekend, even though the individuals only are getting paid a few times a year. Nobel Prize-winning economist Douglas North wrote about the importance of institutions to economic success and the role of path dependency. How do you evaluate the role of institutions to the success of national sports? Look at the examples we talked about. The Korean women's golf came without any institutional support whatsoever. It just grew organically, and CRIPAC became a major champion, and then everybody piled in, and it became a big deal. And then the institutions around it, which are the clubs and other things that are now making champions, built around that success. Czech tennis is the opposite. Institutions really drove the success there. They had their own tournaments around the time Wimbledon started, and Czech aristocracy have been playing tennis and focusing on it for hundreds of years. Norway, their success is all driven by institutions specifically set up by the government. One dynasty I didn't talk about is the most dominant is East African marathoners. East African marathoners at the time I compiled the list of the top 25 marathoners in the world, 24 of them were from Kenya or Ethiopia. And it's actually more condensed than that. There's a group called the Kalenjin tribe that live up in the mountains. That's where all these runners are coming from. It's not institutions. It's all about a history and, and informal institutions and other things that make them so incredible. Institutions are an enabling factor but they're neither sufficient nor are they required. Croatia has outperformed recently in multiple sports, basketball, soccer, skiing, among others. It has outperformed many of its European peers without substantial government funding. What's going on here? You don't need to be China to have as many great people as Croatia has. If you have the institutions in place to go find the great athletes, you only need a few million people to get you there. A few million people in Norway, for example, get you plenty of good athletes, even if you just drew from a random few million around the world rather than only Norway. In your book, you discuss a critical moment in game six of the 1997 NBA Finals between the Chicago Bulls and the Utah Jazz. During the final timeout, Jordan whispers to Steve Kerr to be ready. Everyone in the stadium and those watching from home knew that the basketball would eventually end up in Michael Jordan's hands to take that last shot. And sure enough, Scottie Pippen dishes the ball to Jordan. With the clock ticking down, the entire Utah Jazz defense converges on Jordan. Instead of shooting, Jordan passes the ball to Steve Kerr, 
who hits the winning jumper from the top of the key. Why did Jordan pass it to Kerr? And what does economics and game theory inform us about strategy in sports? I love the Michael Jordan question here. Look, Michael Jordan was going to be a great basketball player, no matter what. But he was only going to be as great if he got the strategy right. And if you look at basketball players who don't play the mixed strategy right and always drive to their left, or if Michael Jordan always took the last shot, he wouldn't have been effective. Five guys would have been standing on top of him, and he would have shot anyway, and they would have blocked it. He has to get it right, and he does it over time by trial and error. He survived because he had incredible skills and did it well. In the book, there are three examples about this mixed strategy equilibrium. The first one is goal kicks. If I'm shooting a penalty kick, I can shoot left or I can shoot right, and it's the best two-by-two simultaneous choice in the history of the world for economists. It's so much better than the true prisoner's dilemma as far as how it really works. The kicker picks, and at the same exact moment, the goalkeeper dives one way or the other, and it has a huge impact. Now, kids come up, and they're 10 years old, and they, they always kick to the left because that's natural, and then the goalies start figuring it out, and they always dive to the right. They figure it out, but if they don't, they're going to be out of the league. So it's just pure survival says the equilibrium is going to work out there. And there's papers written showing that on penalty kicks, it works out. Just to clarify what you mean by this, most right-footed kickers are better at attacking to their left. So the goalies will dive in that direction to block the kick. To keep the goalies honest, the penalty kickers will have to kick to the right sometimes. And what the economists discovered in the data of nearly 1,500 penalty kicks in professional soccer is that the chance of scoring is equal by kicking penalty shots in either direction because both the goalies and the penalty kickers successfully randomized their behavior. Tennis is another example. My tennis serve, I have no control over it. (laughs) So I get awesome random variation in where my serve goes, but it's decided for me by randomness. There's been analyses showing that the best players really do get that right. The third example in the book is pitching. So pitching is another example of a pure, a really great mixed strategy equilibrium setting where the pitcher is deciding whether to throw high, low, fast, slow, curveball, fastball. The batter has to anticipate this because if they're anticipating the wrong pitch, they're more likely to strike out or be way out in front of it or whatever. It is so much harder to get that equilibrium right. With the soccer kick, it doesn't matter. It's the same each time. So you have to make sure you don't have a pattern and any predictability. In baseball, whether you should throw a fastball or not is completely different if you're facing a guy hitting 220 in the eighth inning of a game that's four-run difference versus if it's the bottom of the ninth and you're pitching to Aaron Judge. So those percentages with which you do change dramatically, and they now have people analyzing that on baseball teams, but even you can't get the equilibrium right on this. In baseball, they've shown the best pitchers are actually not as good at the strategy as the other guys. And the reason for that is they don't have to be to survive. So the example I use in the book is Jamie Moyer. He pitched till well into his 40s, and he was known for being crafty and really good with strategy. Well, he had to be. If you're 45, you can't be throwing the wrong pitch. You'll be out the next day. But you compare him to, you know, Mariano Rivera 
threw the same pitch 91% of the time. Everybody knew it was coming. It didn't matter. They couldn't hit it. <laughs> and so it's not, you don't have to worry as much on the strategy if you're not on the survival. That was a long answer to your question, which is Michael Jordan makes that pass thousands of times over his career, and over time, he gets to the right equilibrium, and so does the defense. I'd now like to segue to our second speaker, Stefan Siminski, who joins us from the University of Michigan, where he's an economist, and his new book is called Soccernomics. Stefan, what is the state of soccer analytics? In recent years, we've seen some big claims about progress in the use of data analysis to improve performance. Liverpool, whose owners are famous for the application of analytics to achieve success with the Boston Red Sox, have claimed to make great strides. They've argued that their successful player trading, such as the huge profit they made on the trade in Coutinho, have been largely based on the use of statistical analysis. In the process, they also won the Champions League and the Premier League title. There's no question that they have put together a great team of statisticians, but we question whether they've really made a breakthrough. It's impossible to know what techniques Liverpool is using because the club won't show its model to outsiders. Liverpool's data analysts aren't opening themselves up to peer review. So the only thing outsiders can do is look at the data that is available and see if there's any evidence of exceptional performance. From the financial statements, we identified the annual spend on salaries and net transfer expenditure for each club in the Premier League over a 10-year period and related it to the league position achieved. What the data show is simply that Liverpool spent a bit less and achieved a bit less than the three teams ahead of them. This isn't spectacular overperformance. The data tells the same story if we look only at the most recent five seasons. We don't believe that analytics is capable yet of winning trophies. Three of soccer's leading coaches in the current era, Guardiola, Jose Mourinho and Jurgen Klopp himself, have little time for it. We think a lot of the data analytics going on inside clubs in the 2020s is like alchemy, the search for the Philosopher's Stone, a material that could turn base metal into gold. Alchemy has a bad name, the opposite of scientific inquiry and at root a waste of time. But recently, some historians have pointed out that it wasn't all bad. While alchemists searched for the Philosopher's Stone, they experimented with every possible combination of materials and in the process discovered many things that remain of practical value today, especially in metallurgy. Their insane quest laid the foundations for modern chemistry. Is soccer data only available to experts or is it like Bill James's baseball data that was freely available to the public? Online sources provide large sports databases for free, which you can analyze using open source statistical programming languages such as Python or R. Last year, the University of Michigan launched an online course in sports analytics on the Coursera platform, which can be accessed for free by learners who are led through the process of analyzing sports data. These kinds of developments are democratizing soccer analytics. It's no longer the province of big clubs with big money. And some amateurs have managed to get jobs at clubs by undertaking their own garage band style research. In 2019, Dundee United hired Ashwin Rahman, a 17-year-old soccer geek living in Bangalore, based entirely on his online research capabilities. Alchemy turned into chemistry thanks to the quixotic exploration undertaken by vast numbers of unknown researchers. Something similar seems to be going on in the world of soccer analytics. There are open networks in which people share ideas and knowledge based on a common interest in making sense of the game. 
Michael Lewis wrote a fantastic book years ago called Moneyball. Michael Lewis and I both worked at Solomon Brothers, and Michael was interested in how my fixed income arbitrage department applied quantitative analysis to bond trading. Moneybell tells the story about how Billy Bean applied statistical analysis to baseball when he was the general manager of the Oakland A's. Billy Bean appears to have added the most value to the drafting process as well as with his player trades. What are you seeing in soccer? Traditionally in soccer, most of the top players come from the development processes of the top clubs. And this is something that people often misunderstand about soccer. They imagine that these players are coming from all over the place and the big clubs just hire them when they mature. But actually, that's not really true. The ability to play soccer well is a form of human capital. And the question is, how much of that human capital is specific to where you learn it and how much of it is actually general applicability? The issue for clubs really is that it's almost all general capital. So whatever the players learn at one club, can be easily transferred to another, which is why clubs can identify talent, but they really struggle to profit from that development because there's a wide open market out there for them. American sports have solved this problem through various restrictive practices, not least the draft, which is a way of making sure that there isn't competition for talent. But soccer has traditionally not had those mechanisms which is one of the many reasons why soccer has always been a less profitable business than the major leagues in North America. Is European soccer unprofitable for the owners? Now, there are very few at the top can make money. That's true. In England, Manchester United and Arsenal have always made money, but all the other clubs have pretty much all systematically lost money for decades and decades and decades. What determines profitability for European soccer if there is unlimited competition? Shouldn't firms earn a fair return on capital and the players earn most of the money. Is there any brand value for clubs that can generate extra TV revenues, stadium ticket sales, and jersey advertising? It's a great question. How is it that some make money and some don't make money? And what is the equilibrium in the industry as a whole? North American leagues are relatively straightforward to understand. They have market power, they generate economic rents, they share the economic rents amongst themselves. That's sort of standard 101 cartel theory. If the reason for the existence of the club is something more than the owner's pursuit of profit, there can be a reason why you can make losses. So soccer clubs in Europe represent communities and people are willing to sink money and lose money in support of their communities. They provide more than just profits. They provide a community benefit. But then why is it that some clubs can make money? And there is a theory about this, which is a very elegant theory attributed to a guy called John Sutton. The answer, according to John Sutton, is that there are no sunk costs in this industry. Ask yourself, why does Coca-Cola even spend on marketing or who on the planet has not heard of them? Well, the answer is it's not to actually sell the drink. It's actually to create the barrier to entry. Anybody else to gain recognition against them, they would have to spend like that. The analogy in soccer is that the big clubs like Manchester United, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, these clubs spend an absolute fortune on hiring players. And anybody who wants to challenge them has to sink a similar amount of money into players. They're actually creating a barrier to entry, even though there are hundreds of teams competing in the market. The global capital markets are very deep. You could do an IPO and raise billions if there were excess returns available for soccer. But is there? Did Chelsea, for example, get a decent return on its capital? 
What Roman Abramovich was doing was he got his return on capital. His return on capital was a position in British society which immunized him from being expropriated by Vladimir Putin. And until Putin invaded Ukraine this year, he got away with it. It had actually worked really well and he made himself an established figure. That's easily worth the $1 billion investment he put on it. Sheikh Mansour at Manchester City, what he's building is a reputation for Abu Dhabi the people who are investing in this are getting returns other than purely financial returns. Since COVID, we're seeing private equity flood into European soccer because they see these assets as being cheap. If you buy up a Manchester United, that's historically been a guaranteed return. But what about these private equity funds who are putting their money into some of the lesser clubs? They think that they can follow the same strategy as Sheikh Mansour and Roman Abramovich, the problem is going to arise if too many of them do that. Yes, there's room for one or two more, but if you start to have a dozen or so more competing entities, then you're going to undermine the dominant position of all of those clubs, which would be very interesting for European soccer, but it's not going to be a way that those private equity firms end up making any money. If I had a bet with a competitive market, the teams will not make any excess returns and all the rents will go to the players. All right, next question. Relates to monetizing our tribal instincts. When I was growing up, I was a fanatical Chicago Bears fan. I loved Peyton, Dicka, and Singletary. But American sports have been changing. Some kids love fantasy football and care more about the individual players than about the teams. Do you think the European soccer teams can monetize this tribalism and can they blackmail communities with threats of relocation to have the local community pay for their new stadiums. The idea of relocation is absolutely anathema in Europe. If you try to move a team in Europe, it would be considered a criminal offense. There are hundreds and hundreds of teams, and each team represents a local community. And that community aspect is something that was present in the United States. If you go back to the 1950s, minor league baseball teams had a local identity. But that's died out now. And so the only remaining manifestation in America is college sports. Recently, some of the major European soccer teams tried to create a Super League, and that unraveled in about a day. Was this an attempt to create a monopoly so those teams could earn higher profits? What you have in Europe is traditionally all these different markets. England is a market. Germany is a market. Italy is a market. And what's happened in the modern era is that those market barriers have come down. Fans in England can watch Spanish teams and Italian teams and so on. The owners were trying to create something called a European Super League. Rather than Real Madrid play Liverpool once in a blue moon in the Champions League, we should play them every year. So you create a league that is worth billions, giving people an opportunity to see the best teams in Europe play against each other more frequently because... If you're not in the same country, you don't play each other very often at the moment. That was the valid part of what they were doing. What was the problem with what they were doing? The problem with what they were doing is they wanted to be guaranteed a presence in this league. How does the league organization work if a soccer club performs better or worse than its peers? At the end of each season, teams move up or down in this hierarchy based purely on sporting performance. If you're at the bottom of the league, you go down. And that, for these big clubs, is a huge potential economic threat. 
you can't be sure that one day you won't get relegated. It doesn't happen very often, but it can do even to the biggest clubs. So what they were trying to do was insulate from this competitive process. That's basically an antitrust violation. That's trying to get rid of competition. And fortunately, it's also against all the traditions of European soccer. And so the fans really don't want to see that. They really hate the idea. And that was ultimately what stopped them in that process. So they had a good idea, but they wrapped it up in a very bad idea. The bad idea was, why don't we corner the market for ourselves? It was too transparent, and that's why it failed. The NFL owners are big-time profit seekers, yet their organizational structure encourages equality among the teams. All the TV revenues are shared equally. The best draft choices go to the teams with the worst records, and the worst draft choices go to the most successful teams. The life of the average NFL player is short, so teams have trouble creating dynasties. For example, my Chicago Bears were unbeatable in 1985, but they won only a single Super Bowl. What do you see in soccer? That's a very interesting question. So the hidden assumption in your statement is that if they didn't do this, they would be less profitable. There are two interpretations of what they're doing. Their explanation is that in order for a league to be successful, you need competitive balance. This was an idea dreamt up by baseball in 1879, that we need to share resources because if a competition becomes too unbalanced, then people will lose interest. It will become too predictable. And so we need to share resources fairly equally to make sure that the teams are competitive from year to year. Do leagues that are more balanced generate more interest than teams that are less balanced? There's an awful lot of research in economics and an awful lot of published papers on this. The results are completely ambiguous. What's the economist's explanation? Well, if you're engaged in a cartel activity, you want to reduce the forces that might make you compete because competition competes away rents. So what you want to do is find mechanisms which will disincentivize teams to compete with each other in economic terms. So the draft is a way of stopping teams competing to get the best new players coming into the league. The salary cap is a way to stop teams competing to build up a better team. The revenue sharing is a way to stop teams competing by saying, well, if I compete and generate more revenue, I'm just going to have to give it away to the other teams anyway. So all of these mechanisms are really anti-competitive mechanisms to maximize the rents and the monopoly profits of the league rather than this claimed benefit of competitive balance. I recently went to see the U.S. Open, and there were games between excellent players who aren't in the top 10, and just a few fans were watching their matches. Their tennis play was excellent, but nobody cared. But the top players have huge crowds. Most of these economic rents are earned by the U.S. Open franchise and not by the top players. Imagine if the top eight players in tennis decided to boycott the Grand Slams and instead took it on the road and had competitive round robins. They could get sellout crowds and earn most of the rent themselves. Why don't we see that? Why don't most of the rents go to the players instead of the organizers of, say, a tournament like Wimbledon? Well, so I say this to you as an economist, money is not everything. Oh, come on. <laughs> Sorry, I hate to say that. 
These players have brought up on the traditions of the US Open, traditions of Wimbledon, and a cynic might say they're brought up on those specifically so that those tournaments can earn rents, right? Maybe that's true. But tradition plays a role, and tradition embeds rent. So it creates barriers to entry. The serious point here is a sport without tradition, without a history, is not that interesting, right? Compare this with European soccer, all of the leagues that are competing in Europe, they've been there for decades. It's not that people are tuning in to watch Japanese soccer or let's say major league soccer, that's not really an attraction. It's new and it's not very good and it's not going to be competitive. But the German league, the Bundesliga, well, there's a tradition there, the Spanish league, there's a tradition which you know, can attract fans across borders. Michael Lewis, in another of his classic books, The Blind Side, highlights the value of the football player who plays left tackle. This is a position on the offensive line that protects the quarterback and is such an important role that the best left tackles earn much more than other players. In soccer, there are huge differences in compensation between player positions. This is a team sport. Should teams splurge and spend most of their money on one or two great players and have a bunch of other low-paid teammates? Or should the team pay more evenly and get a much better average player. We still have a lot of uncertainty about how members of a team fit together. Some people argue that you're only as good as the weakest link in the team, and therefore you need to distribute your spending more evenly rather than focusing all your money on the top player. What is the optimal salary structure? How should you concentrate your resources? I did do a little bit of research on this in soccer and found that teams looked like they were better off really focusing on the spine of the team, which is the striker, the main midfielder, the main central defender, and the goalkeeper. So sort of four out of 11 players, and it wouldn't really matter much spending on anybody else. In an interview with Paul Oyer on today's podcast, we discussed the game theory of how to defend Michael Jordan. Should players over-defend the best players and leave relatively open worst players in soccer? How do you evaluate the complex dynamics of team sports? This is turning out to be the big problem with data analytics, is that how do you simultaneously control for the contribution of all the players at the same time? So you could imagine that there would be some teams that would have to put all their defense onto Michael Jordan, but there are some teams where they have such good defenders that you wouldn't need to do that, and so Steve Kerr can be guarded as well. My sense is that analytics has made relatively limited progress in sports like basketball and soccer, unlike baseball, where I think it's made a lot more progress because you can break down baseball into single events, pitcher versus batter, and it's much easier to understand what's going on. One of the things that data seems to be showing pretty obviously is that teams should spend more time planning free kicks in soccer. The expected goals from free kicks is ridiculously high if you practice But in terms of the more detailed strategy of movements of the players around the field, and I think this goes for basketball and hockey as well, that's a little bit beyond our grasp at the moment. What are you optimistic about as it relates to professional soccer? I think what I think is great is the rise of women's soccer. I think women's soccer is becoming something that will match men's soccer globally in the way that women's tennis matches men's tennis. We can argue about, oh, the women better or who's the difference. But in the end... There's a huge audience for women's tennis, and I think the audience for women's soccer is growing, and I think that's a great development. What's driving that success of women's soccer? Women's soccer was deliberately restrained by the men for most of the 20th century. 
And what's changed is that women have forced their way into the market and forced men to recognize their capacity to play the game. And as that is happening, resources are going into women's soccer and they're getting better and better. It's a non-linear process. It's exponential in terms of the improvement in quality. Thanks, Paul and Stefan, for joining us today. If you missed last week's session, please check it out. Our speaker was Jeff Lunau, the former general manager of the Houston Astros and the current owner of soccer teams in both Mexico and Spain. Jeff explained how owners use sport analytics to draft and trade players, how they use game theory to improve strategy for penalty kicks, and how to apply metrics to get player buy-in that improves player development. The Moneyball culture changed sports, and Jeff will explain what goes on behind the scenes. The topic for next week's show switches to food porn. Our speaker will be Rebecca Halpern, the writer and director of a new documentary film, Love Charlie. They will be released in theaters and available for streaming on November 18th. The film is about the life of the famous top chef, Charlie Trotter, who revolutionized American cuisine. Charlie was a creative genius. He used a different 10-course menu each day for 25 years. He introduced farm to table, the dining table, and the kitchen, eliminated hard liquor and foie gras from the menu. Trotter influenced many of the great top chefs of his generation and demanded excellence from everyone around him. You will love this conversation with Rebecca about her new documentary masterpiece. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts at our website, whathappensnextinsixminutes.com. Please encourage your friends to join the What Happens Next community by signing up for our free weekly updates about upcoming podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe on our website and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I would like to thank our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.